Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 454. It's titled, How to Invest Money, 10 Investing Rules of Thumb. In early 2012, right before I was going to leave my investment advisory firm, I spent a couple weeks in southern Mexico in the Yucatan. I went by myself and I spent the time taking photographs, writing, thinking. One of the things I was really focused on, putting down my investment philosophy as it would apply to individuals. I had spent almost 15 years managing money for institutions, university endowments, private foundations, as well as managing the assets for individual investors, the assets of financial advisors. I hadn't thought much about this writing. It eventually became an ebook until this past week. And it turns out I've touched on some of these principles in the podcast. I certainly discussed them some in my book, Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing. But they are somewhat different. I thought it would be helpful to share these investing rules of thumb and expound on them a little bit or what, what might have changed in the past decade. Because things do change. Markets evolved. Economies evolved. Tulum, where I spent a week on the beach, I, a decade ago in 2012, I spent about, a, just think, under $200 a night for a little cabana on the beach. Beautiful, beautiful beach. It was difficult to get to Tulum at that time. You, I rented a car, but you had to drive an hour or so from Cancun. Now, apparently, Delta has a direct flight to Tulum. In that same hotel or cabana where I spent less than $200 a night, last time we checked, they wanted over $1,500 a night per room, and we don't stay there anymore. Just not worth it. So things evolve. Here's investment rule number one. Stop using institutional hand-me-downs. When I was growing up, I got a lot of hand-me-down clothes from my cousins. Some I loved. I had a killer pair of red bell-bottom pants that I loved to wear, but others I just sort of hid away in the drawer. As individual investors, we also inherit hand-me-downs. Not hand-me-down clothes, but tools and language that institutional investors, such as pension plans and college endowments, use to manage their portfolios. They include complicated-sounding tools, such as strategic asset allocation, Monte Carlo simulation, market benchmarks. Some of the tools can be helpful, but we need to remember that we're individual investors. We're not pension plans. So we don't have to invest like them, nor do we have to use the same tools that they use. Because there's a main difference between us and an institution, a college endowment. We die. Institutions don't, or usually don't. The investment time horizon for an institutional investor is significantly longer than that of individuals. Most institutions invest for perpetuity. And given their longer time horizon, institutions can afford to make mistakes because there's ample time to recover from them. But as individuals, we don't get second chances. Institutions do. If an institution, such as a pension plan or college endowment, suffers devastating portfolio losses, they can go to their corporate sponsors or their fundraising arm to get more funds. But as individuals, if we're approaching retirement, we don't have that luxury. My cousin's hand-me-down clothes work for me because they actually fit. But in many cases, the language and tools of institutional investors don't fit individual investors. Wearing hand-me-down shoes that are too big is risky because you could trip and fall. 
and likewise individuals who manage portfolios using ill-fitting tools could take on too much risk. And here's an example. Risk for an individual is the probability of losing money or running out of money completely. If you have a shorter time frame to recover from losses, no one will come to the rescue to make you whole. And as a result, losing money can be very risky. Most institutions don't define risk as losing money, but as volatility. Volatility measures the range of expected returns for a given portfolio or asset class, such as stocks or bonds. In other words, how high are the highs compared to how low are the lows? Asset classes with a wider range of potential returns, bigger swings up and down, are more risky. Defining risk as volatility instead of losing money might seem like a small difference, but it's not. That definitional difference can lead to a cascade of inappropriate portfolio decisions that ultimately could jeopardize a person's ability to retire. How could that be? Because defining risk as volatility assumes that periodic episodes of large portfolio losses are necessary in order to meet long-term investment goals. But they're not. You don't need to lose a ton of money in order to make money. In fact, it's easier to make money and meet our long-term goals if we can avoid major drawdowns, something we talked about a couple weeks ago in discussing volatility drag in the episode when we talked about how much to allocate to stocks. So institutions believe large losses are just a natural part of investing. So they minimize risk not by reducing the chance of losing money, but by choosing a portfolio mix that minimizes the portfolio swings given the level of return. They're willing to suffer through large losses while adhering to their target portfolio mix because they believe the bad years will be more than offset by the good years. And if they're not, they can always go raise more money. The bottom line is individuals can't afford to lose large amounts of money when they invest. So they shouldn't use hand-me-down institutional tools that encourage it. That leads us to investment rule number two. Stay close to home base. In investment rule number one, we reviewed why individual investors shouldn't use institutional hand-me-downs to manage their investment portfolio, and it comes down to risk. Risk for an individual is losing money, which can be devastating if the losses are large, and losing large amount of money can make it very difficult to meet our savings goal. We need to remember that definitions drive behavior. If we define risk as volatility, that leads to certain investment decisions. If we define risk as losing money, the investment decisions will differ. In the childhood game tag, there is something called a home base where you're safe from being tagged. And in a typical game, if you're tagged somewhere away from home base, you become it and you start chasing others and try to tag them. But what if if we were tagged in a more adult version of tag, we lost 20% of our net worth. That would change our strategy. We would be more risk averse we might not be willing to venture as far from home base. And that's investment rule number two, stay close to home base. If our definition of risk is losing money, then home base is that target allocation that keeps us from suffering devastating losses. That target can change over time, and it does change based on the current market environment, the market's temperature. And we've discussed this in previous weeks. When we can earn 5% on cash or earn 2.5% real plus inflation, then that becomes our home base. On the most risk-averse investment, cash or tips is home base. When we can get an adequate return near home base, then we don't have to go take more risk where the risk of losing money is greater. 
One of the things with institutions and how they differ from individuals is institutions are very focused on how do they perform relative to others and relative to a benchmark. Because an institutional investor, a college endowment, is typically there's investment committee members. And while they care about the institution, they also care about their reputation. And are they doing a good job? And that's measured by whether they outperformed a benchmark or they're doing as well as other university endowments. And so if the portfolio loses money but outperformed the benchmark, well, that's okay. That isn't necessarily the case for individuals. Individual investors, in some ways, are more like hedge funds because when hedge funds lose money, their fees get cut because they earn, in many cases, 20% of the profits as an incentive fee. And if a hedge fund loses too much money, then many of their employees leave because they're not able to recoup those losses or it will be some time to recoup those losses, which means the fees will stay low. Hedge funds that lose too much money shut down. And in some ways, a hedge fund can be ruined by large losses. And so they're, they're more similar to individual investors. Rule two is to, is to stay close to home base. However you define that, our willingness to move away from home base depends on how things stand, which we'll talk about in the other rules. Rule three is beware of dragon risk. Dragon risk was a term adopted by Cliff Asnes and Martin Leibowitz, two very successful investors. It refers to how medieval map makers used to draw dragons and other mythological creatures on the unexplored territories of their maps, signifying unknown dangers that could reside there. In investing, dragon risk represents all the unknowns that can lead to large portfolio losses. Dragon risk is why we stay close to home base. The further we shift the portfolio from cash into more volatile investments such as stocks, the more exposed the portfolio is to unexpected events and negative surprises. In other words, dragon risk. Hedge funds reduce dragon risk in many cases by hedging. They find the most cost-effective way at any given point in time to protect their portfolio against large losses. They can do this by purchasing derivative securities, such as put options or other, in many cases, other derivatives that can be purchased in the private market. Well, many hedge funds won't admit this, but if you ask them what specific event they're hedging against, they often will say they don't know. They're hedging against unpredictable, unknowable bad events, what Nassim Nicholas Taleb would call black swans and we'll call dragons. Buying portfolio hedges is one way to protect against dragon risk, but in many cases, they can be very, very expensive for individual investors. Another way, though, is to stay close to home base. Choose an allocation based on our age that we will not be ruined if the stock market falls 60%. And being willing to add an asset class or increase the allocation when conditions are more favorable. When I mention favorable conditions, I'm not talking about predicting a specific event. When we hedge against dragon risk, we, we don't know what specific event could happen. The more specific the prediction, the more likely it is to be wrong. As predictions become more detailed, they can be skewed based on our present opinion and biases. But the more specific we are, when our returns are based on some binary event happening, cryptocurrency goes up in price. That's a very, very specific prediction. To build a thriving portfolio, 
we don't want our investment success to be dependent on specific predictions. We often hear from great investors such as Peter Lynch, Warren Buffett, invest in what you know. But the reality is most investors, including most professional investors, don't know enough to run an entire portfolio investing in what they know. And I saw this as an institutional money manager, as we would try to research long-only stock managers or hedge funds that oftentimes they got tripped up because something unexpected happened. They had a specific prediction and it didn't happen, dragon risk, and they got hurt. So rule three is beware of dragon risk, the unknown, and try to structure a diversified portfolio so that our success isn't dependent on specific predictions that we make. Investment rule four is mind your investment seasons. And it focused on favorable investment conditions, which can be thought of as favorable weather. Just as we don't launch a sailboat when heavy storms are likely, there are favorable investing conditions when the sun is shining and there's a tailwind that raises the likelihood of positive portfolio returns. It's easier to identify favorable investment conditions than it is to predict specific events. We know what the current yield on bond funds are or cash to estimate our expected return. We know that tips are most attractive now than they've been in many years. It's a favorable investment environment for Treasury inflation protection security, something that we'll talk about in more detail in, in an upcoming episode. I mentioned that the more specific the prediction, the more likely it is to be wrong. It's very, very difficult to predict whether it's going to snow this Christmas if you live in the North. But if you live in the North, it's easier to predict that it will probably be colder than it was in the summer. And the reason being that when we're predicting it's going to be cold in the winter, winter's a season, not a one-day event. Winter's a time when due to the angled axes of the Earth, either the northern or southern hemisphere is tilted further away from the sun, receiving less of its energy. Hence, it's darker and colder in the winter. While some winter days are colder than others, it's safe bet that the average winter temperature will be colder than the summer. And so our clothes and our activities will differ in the winter than in the summer. And as investors, how we go about investing will differ based on the investment season. And that's why rule number four is mind your investment season. Understand where things are. What are valuations? Where area of the market is more attractive? What areas should we be avoiding? We did a plus episode last week on mortgage real estate investment trust. There's an investment guide on Money for the Wrestlers website on mortgage REITs. It is not a favorable time for mortgage REITs right now, and that's why they have lost over 20% year to date. And so on Money for the Rest of Us, on Money for the Rest of Us Plus, we spend a great deal of time understanding what is the season for different asset classes? And we look at valuations, we look at economic trends, we look at sentiment, the level of fear and greed in the market. And that's rule number four. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard. 
where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. Rule number five is catch the popping corn. As investors, we're human and we're irrational. And we make decisions based on our emotions, our biases. We're inconsistent. We make cognitive errors. And one of those inconsistencies is we tend to extrapolate our recent experience far into the future. If a stock is appreciated and, and the portfolio company is doing well, we believe those trends will continue. In fact, our minds seek out information that confirms our belief while discounting items that contradict our current positioning. Conversely, when an investment is doing poorly and losses are mounting, the distaste is palpable. After we sell, the memory of that loss stays with us for a very long time. That feeling is much stronger than how good we feel when things go well. We remember the bad things more. I remember negative reviews of my podcast more than I remember the positive ones, which is a shame, but that's why we're human. And so when you think about those feelings and multiply those feelings and tendencies across millions of investors and thousands of investment securities, we can get asset classes elements of the market that get too cheap and others that get too expensive. The whole premise of value investing is investors overreact. An investor can purchase a stock because they believe it's going to do better than what everyone expects. And because it's, it's cheap, there's a margin of safety if things don't work out as they expect. But investing in an individual security is incredibly difficult. I spent over 16 years meeting with hundreds of investment firms. I co-led a 21-person research group as we tried to find investors with the skill to make specific predictions about specific companies or securities. 
And it's incredibly difficult to do because the more specific the prediction, the more likely it's going to be wrong. And we have dragon risk, negative surprises. And that leads to investment rule number five, catch the popping corn. One reason we invest in index funds and ETFs is we can catch the upside surprises. You think about how a popcorn popper works. You have hundreds of popcorn kernels spinning around the air popper's chamber. And within each kernel, there's a, a little water droplet that heats up. And when it gets hot enough, the kernel of corn pops as that, the pressure builds. We know that if we make some popcorn, many or most of the kernels will pop. Not all of them. But we don't have to predict which one. We just know that the conditions are right for that. The same for investing in a diversified basket of undervalued securities. If we're in, a, let's say, a value ETF, we don't know which security is going to surprise to the upside. But the idea is that in buying something that's attractively priced, so equity REITs right now, real estate investment trust, are the most attractively priced than they've been since 2018. The dividend yield is higher than average. The price to funds from operation is cheaper than average. There are obviously risk with equity REITs, but all things being equal, I would rather own equity REITs now and add to my position like I, I did a few weeks ago, not knowing exactly what's going to happen, but knowing conditions are more favorable now than they were in 2021 after equity REITs had increased 40% that year and I reduced my allocation. And we reduced it in our model portfolio examples of money for the rest of us plus. And so the idea behind rule number five is buy baskets of securities, index funds or ETFs, so that we can capture the popping corn, the positive surprises. The reality is with, with an index fund or ETF, some will do better than expected. Some of the underlying securities will do worse and they cancel each other out so that what drives performance is the underlying factors. It's the cash flow, the dividend yield, the growth of that cash flow, and what investors are willing to pay for it. So with equity REITs, the expected returns higher now because the dividend yields over 4%. And if earnings come in, if they are able to grow their rent and earnings 4%, then that's an 8% return. And then if the price increases, investors are willing to pay more, then that is additive to that. Rule number six is watch for market swarms. A weather barometer helps in the short-term weather forecasting, whether there's a change in atmospheric pressure. In the investment world, the equivalent is sentiment. Sentiment measures the pulse of investors, their level of fear and greed. What is the predominant narrative or story driving investment markets? We already know that investors are irrational. They can become overly pessimistic or overly optimistic about the prospect of certain companies. And that can lead to undervalued securities. Investors are always sharing with each other. And so there tends to be and can be groupthink as investors sort of work together. And you think about swarming birds, grackles or you know, other blackbirds that swarm around where they act in unison. And the same can happen with investors. And so when we're in a downward swarm, when we have economic deterioration, when valuations are very, very high. When we're not in a favorable investment season, then we want to stay closer to home base and not take as much risk. When the atmospheric pressure drops, the barometer drops, there's some subjectivity as to the intensity, the duration, or even the location of the storm. 
But just knowing a storm is coming, we at least can prepare for it. There's definitely some subjectivity when it comes to investor sentiment. There's never a silver bullet saying, like, this is what's going to happen, which is why we can gradually adjust our risk based on investor sentiment, but we never go all in or all out of the market. It's always a constant adaptation based on how things stand, based on our life stage. Rule seven, then, is track the economic winds. Just as swarming birds seem to move as one, there are times when investors seem to act in unison, causing markets to plummet or soar. And one of those factors that can drive that is corporate profits and what investors are paying for those corporate profits. At an individual company level, there there are a host of of micro factors that can influence earnings, such as the strength of a company's product lineup, the quality of its leadership, what its competitors are doing. At the index level, as I mentioned, these factors can cancel each other out. And what drives total earnings for an index fund? It's what's going on with the economy. What are overall corporate profits doing? As we mentioned, it's very difficult to predict the outcome for specific companies. But we can measure what's going on with the overall economy, the overall economic pie. Is it growing? And what we're looking for is whether there is an economic headwind or tailwind. One of the tools I've mentioned numerous times on the show is leading economic indicators such as purchasing manager indices. And we've been in an environment where economic trends, as measured by purchasing manager indices, these are business surveys done around the world asking business how business is, that's been more negatively biased over the past year. And as a result, I've taken less risk in my portfolio, stayed closer to home base, and we've done the same in our model portfolios based on Rule number seven, which is is to track the economic wind, at least understand what those leading economic indicators are saying. What is the season we are in? And we track the economic winds. Investment rule number eight is follow the traffic lights. And the three lights that, that I followed professionally, whether they're red, green, or yellow, red, we're more cautious, green, we go, yellow is more neutral, market valuations. What is the market temperature for specific asset classes? What is the economic wind analysis? What season is it? What are those economic trends? And the third is the investor sentiment. What is the level of fear and greed? What, is, what are the narratives, the stories driving investors? Are they acting more as a swarm in one way or the other? Or are there more disparate opinions? Now, some variables are, are very fast moving. Investor sentiment can change very quickly. Others, such as the economic trends, change more slowly. And it's something that that I have monitored in the several decades that I've managed assets, my own and for others, to help guide what to do. Where are we today? Not trying to make specific predictions, but be aware of what the risks are and what the opportunities are. And the investment rule eight is, is to follow the traffic light. You know, are investment conditions red? green, or yellow. Rule nine is diversify your baskets. Baskets are assets. And this is straightforward. We've talked about it numerous times. We diversify into cash, bonds, stocks, and many other asset types. And we avoid concentration so that we can benefit from the underlying drivers and our success isn't based on specific predictions. And investment rule 10 is don't burn your ships. In 1519, Hernán Cortés landed with a fleet of 12 ships near present-day Veracruz, Mexico. The flotilla had 500 Spaniards, 300 natives, 
dozen horses, and a few cannons. Cortes wanted to conquer the Aztec Empire. And the legend is that before launching the attack, Cortes burned his ships to prevent his men from retreating. Through the ages, this brazen act has come to represent fully committing to a course of action, going all in, burning all bridges. But the legend is wrong. Cortes had nine of the 12 ships sail into the sand, grounding them. There's no word on the other three ships, but according to Hugh Thomas in the book Conquest, the burning ship air derives from sloppy handwriting. Two Spanish words were confused in the written record, quebrando, which means breaking, and comando, which means burning. And the thought is that Cortes kept three of the ships unharmed in case it didn't go well. He had a margin of safety, some protection. I used to meet annually with Seth Klarman of the Balpost Group. His book is titled Margin of Safety. We don't burn our ships. We keep a reserve. We buy insurance. We make choices so that we're not financially ruined. Those are our 10 rules of thumb then. One, stop using institutional hand-me-downs. Make sure the tools we use serve you as an individual investor. Two, stay close to home base. Don't make investment decisions that could ruin us. We want to make an allocation decision more like a hedge fund where we're not going to be ruined if we suffer major losses. Rule three is beware of dragon risk, the unknowns, what could ruin us. Rule four is to mind your investment seasons. Be aware of where things are. What's the ongoing narrative? Do we have economic headwinds or tailwinds? Rule five is catch the popping corn. Invest in asset classes that are cheaper, that have more embedded surprises, where our success isn't dependent on predicting which security will do the best, but we have a basket of securities to help us with that. Rule six is watch for market swarms. What's the ongoing narrative? Is investment sentiment negative or positive? Rule seven is track the economic wins, leading economic indicators. Understand where we are from an economic standpoint, because that's what drives corporate profit growth, which drives the return of the stock market. Rule eight is follow the traffic lights, red, green, or yellow, investment conditions, something that we do monthly on money for the rest of us plus. Rule nine is diversify your baskets, many different types of asset classes, so that we can benefit from the underlying portfolio drivers and get that diversification. And rule 10 is don't burn your ships. Make sure that we have some reserve, savings, insurance, perhaps an annuity if we're entering retirement or other ways so that if markets turn against us, we're not ruined. Hopefully you have found these investing rules of thumb helpful. That's episode 454. Thanks for listening. I have loved teaching you about investing on this podcast for over nine years. Some topics, though, are just better explained in writing or with a chart. And that's why we have a weekly free email newsletter, The Insider's Guide. In that newsletter, I share charts, graphs, and other materials that can help you better understand investing. It's some of the most important writing I do each week. That's why I spend a couple hours on that newsletter on Wednesday morning, as I try to share something that will be helpful to you. If you're not on the list, please subscribe. Go to moneyfortherestofus.com to subscribe to the free Insider's Guide weekly email newsletter. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.